We're going to be in John chapter 20 today. We've been in John for a little bit, uh, but we're going to be in chapter 20 today. So if you have your Bibles, I hope that you do. They're wonderful things to have. Uh, You can be turning there. So it's Easter. Uh, it is the feast that follows the fast in the rhythms of uh, the year. Uh, at least that's how we think about it. Uh, we've spent um, some, some of you uh, with me uh, the last 40 plus days thinking about uh, our mortality, uh, our sin, uh, roughly our need of salvation, uh, preparing ourselves to think about and remind ourselves how deeply we need resurrection. And so today we begin the celebration of that. Uh, and I, it's just amazing. It is an amazing time of year. Uh, so I, um, it's true that uh, I can be difficult. I, I'm a difficult person sometimes. I, so a few years ago, uh, probably five, six years ago, I don't, I don't know when it was, I noticed that I was responding to people just like, how are you doing? And I was always like, I'm, you know, good but busy. So we all, I noticed everybody said that. How are you doing? We're good but busy. And then one day I just decided, just to irritate people, uh, that I was going to stop saying that and that I was going to tell people I was bored. Uh, so I did that. People were like, how are you doing? I'm like, bored. I'm so bored lately. What do you do with all this time? And then everybody just kind of like looked shocked and was quiet and kind of walked off, which was good. That worked out well for me. Uh, so, yeah, but I just, I just did it to, just to see what people would do. Five or six years ago, uh, my family has this thing where you're supposed to spend $20 on a gift, right? It had just gotten out of control. There were too many kids, so you spend 20 bucks on a gift, right? So that was going great. Uh, and then one Christmas, I decided that I was going to spend $20 on everybody, everybody's gift but one person. And I spent $200 on that person's gift just to see what would happen. It wasn't that they deserved it more. I just wanted to see what the rest of the family would do. Socks, 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 video game system. Socks, so, you know, it was like that kind of deal, right? Then next year, and nobody said a word to me. So I, the next year I was like, I'm doing it again. And so they don't think I'm just picking randomly. I'm gonna give the same person the same 200, a different $200 gift. Uh, the same person. I, I, just, I just wanted to see what would happen. Uh, they didn't deserve it, they didn't earn it. I just wanted to see what happened. About a year and a half ago, I've noticed this pattern. I just, I'm, I'm just confessing a pattern to you, a behavior. Uh, I started asking people uh, for no holy reason at all, no righteous reason at all, uh, if they brought up a subject that I didn't want to talk about, and I could tell what they were going to say anyway, right? Like I could tell what news channel they watched by the way they led me with that question. Like it didn't matter. Like if I was like, I don't want to talk about this. I would just stop, no matter what it was, and I would go, hey, you think Jesus really rose from the dead? And they would just like, it would, in the South, that freezes you. What? Because like you recognize that you're supposed to engage in this kind of like this, this conversation. And I, and I just would do that. And I go, I, and the sole reason I was doing it was I was redirecting the conversation to something that I wanted to talk about. Hey, you brought this up and you're going to make me talk about this. You know what? You think Jesus really rose from the dead? What slowly began to happen though, and this was an accident, again, no intent on my part. It actually began to work out pretty good. Like I, I guess people were like, well, yeah, I think he did. And I'm like, do, what? do you think that matters? And now, even if we had to return to their initial conversation, at least we were doing it in light of the question that I'd asked. We can have that conversation, but remember, Jesus rose from the dead, so that probably has bearing on the answer to your question that you're asking. Now, again, that sounds like I did some kind of judo trick. That was totally acting. I was just trying to be a jerk. But it worked out. Because here's what I found. Like, that's like, as I was having this conversation, I was just like, hey, that's question number one. And so often we want to ask question 1,762. And here's the deal. I don't know that we can answer question 1,762 about Christianity until we've answered question one. Did Jesus rise from the dead? 
I mean, because there's no point in having all of these other conversations about the implications of life in Christ. And so I think so many times we want to enter into this conversation, want to enter into the life of, life of Jesus, or, or, or accepting Jesus and trying to understand Jesus way down here at this thing that interests us. But question one matters most. Did he really rise from the dead? Because if not, none of these other things matter. And if so, it probably has an impact on all of those other questions. And that's why I love Easter so much, is that I get to ask that question again and again and again. I think it's also interesting. You know what? Let's read it. Let's read the story. Uh, uh, John 20. More interesting than what I was going to say anyway. Jesus has been falsely accused, arrested, and he's been put to death on the cross. And then uh, Saturday, the world stands silent. I don't know that Saturday gets enough. Like Monday has a, Thursday has a cool name, Monday, Thursday, and then Good Friday. Saturday is, you know, it doesn't have a great name. It's like Silent Saturday. But here's the thing I think about as you're waiting for Easter on Saturday. Uh, it's interesting to think that just because God is silent doesn't mean he's not at work. And then Sunday happens. And this is, this is the story. It was the first day of the week Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran. She went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Uh, Both of them were running together. The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first and stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter, following him, went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the foot. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know what they have, where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus standing but she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him home. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is, it's unbelievable. So here's the deal. Uh, I think it's interesting. Uh, An interesting thing about Christianity is that it begins with It begins with accepting a historical fact, right? It begins with acknowledging that this thing happened in human history. 
It's, it doesn't start with like, hey, like here's five steps to self-actualization and then we'll tell you this new secret. It, it doesn't begin with, it's not another uh, boring, uh, moralistic program. It's not another set of things to do and don't do. It's not like, hey, if you want to follow Jesus, here's a list of things to do. We'll take a look at your resume and we'll get back to you. No, it, it begins with accepting a historical fact because here's the thing, it's news, Right? It's, it's an announcement that this thing has happened. Hey, Jesus, he's risen from the dead. It's an announcement, not some program that we have to follow. And I'm not really interested in some version of Christianity, which is no Christianity at all, that does away with the physical resurrection of Jesus. Because without that, you're just left with, well, there's just more steps to be a nicer person, to live a good life or more like what? I don't, I don't need, the reason they keep writing new self-help books every year is because uh, none of them get it right. We have to keep writing new ones. Uh, so I'm not interested in another moralistic thing, another set of rules that I have to follow to be a good person or how to live a good life. Uh, what I'm interested in is this announcement that Jesus has risen from the dead. And, and look, to, to be fair, I'm on the side of Paul, right? Like I'm not being a jerk. Paul said this. There, Paul was talking to people in church and there's this, apparently there's people, even in Paul's day, in the church, that were like, yeah, do we really need to like, hold to the whole Jesus actually physically rose from the dead thing? Like, is, that like, is that like a deal breaker? And Paul's like, yeah, that's a deal breaker. I'm paraphrasing. He's like, yeah, that's a deal breaker. As a matter of fact, what he said was, if he didn't cut, rise back from the dead, you're wasting your time, your faith is in vain, eat, drink, and be merry. Live it up if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So yeah, it's, not, it's a deal breaker for me because then it becomes just a program and list of rules instead of this announcement about this reality that's happened. A new reality has happened in the world because there's no hope in all those moralistic things. But if Jesus rose from the dead, there's hope. That's what interests me. That's what I need. I need to know there's hope. Look at Look at Mary. I love this part. So uh, the, the, the disciples, John and, and Peter, uh, they fade off into the scene and, and Mary just stays there. And, uh, uh, a surprising hero. I, if this didn't really happen, I don't think anybody could have written this and, and put Mary in this place. But I just, I love it so much that she's here and that she's the one that sees first and she's the one that announces and she's the one that sees Jesus. I love it so much. Uh, so she's standing outside the tomb weeping and she, she's crying and crying and crying. She looks inside the tomb and she sees uh, these two angels and they say, woman, why are you weeping? I, I don't know the tone of this. Perhaps it was uh, compassion. Like, why are you crying, Puddin'? Like, I don't know. Like, maybe they were like really kind of like, oh, she's sad. Uh, but what if they're confused? I'm not saying they are. I can't read the tone out of this. But, but what, if the, what if they're like, hey, why is that lady crying? Why are you crying? Don't you know that the greatest thing that's ever happened has happened? Do you, you understand that we heard about this before the earth was formed? We were waiting and we knew him before he even came to earth and then he came to earth and died and it blew our minds and he's risen from the dead? Why are you crying? Would you rather he was still here? But for her, from her perspective, she didn't know these things yet. To her, it was loss upon loss. She's already lost her savior. She's already lost her friend. She's already lost this one that she calls Lord. And now she goes and she can't even see his body. It's loss upon loss upon loss. And her heart is broken. Her response is the human response. It's, it's our our response. It's, it's anybody's response in the face of death. In the presence of the overwhelming cruelty of death. Because death just seems so 
final, and everybody knew that. I, I, I get tickled sometimes when people, not tickled, that's not right, I feel sad, feel bad. Okay, it's tickled first, then I feel bad. But when people were like, a, their objection is like, yeah, but like people don't rise from the dead. Like, I know, that, they knew that. They, people, they, they, they're like, no, they just didn't know. I'm like, no, they knew people wouldn't rise from the dead. Like, that's the reason we make a big deal about it. That's why we put on jackets and buy new shoes. Like, that's, like we do these things because it's a big deal that someone rose from the dead. Like, yeah. And so they, they knew this. It seemed so final. It seems so much like an end. And I think we all have the instinct that the world's not supposed to be this way, that we don't want it to be this way, that there should be, there should be more than this. And I, and I think that we all feel when we face death and when we see it happen around us that we want to be a part of a world where that doesn't happen, when we don't lose the ones that we love. And we've lost so many of the ones that we love lost a father, I lost a friend that was like a brother, I lost a son. We, we, we lose people and it is heartbreaking and it feels like, just like my instinct is like the world shouldn't be this way. And the good news of the resurrection is that it won't always be. And when we know this, I think it's uh, probably a fair kind of uh, criticism. I think Christian, uh, people make of Christianity and go like, that's just wishful thinking that you'll one day be gathered to your people. Uh, I get that. I do wish that this is true. And if the tomb is empty, then it is. If the tomb was empty, then this isn't wishful thinking. There's real hope here. There's real hope that there is a reality, that there is a someone more final than death. It is a revelation. The empty tomb doesn't mean death doesn't sting, sting while we're still here. It does mean that death's not final that it doesn't have the final say that Jesus does. It means that death is defeated. It means that there's something more concrete, more certain than death, that Jesus himself, that death doesn't have the final word. It's not the final word, Jesus is. There's real hope in that, that Jesus really rose from the dead. And this introduces a whole new way of living, a a new way of living and a new way of understanding that that literally changed the world, that changed the course of history, which is insane because so much of Christianity or to so many people, Christianity seems foolish, right? Paul even says that. It's foolishness. It's a stumbling block to these people and it's it's foolishness to these people. I think to the moderns who don't even believe in supernatural beings, they look at this and they look at Christianity and go, it's just, how can you believe this craziness? And even to people back in the early church father time and in this time that they believed in gods or the Roman time when they believed in many, many, many gods, the idea of a crucified God just seemed crazy. As a matter of fact, the first image that we have of, the first drawing that we have of Jesus on a cross is actually Graffiti. It's made to mock the cross. Uh, there's somebody who was making fun of, fun of a guy, uh, uh, Alex Amenos, uh, and, and it's a picture of this little kid holding his hand up to a stick figure on a cross, but he has the head of a donkey. And it says, Alex Amenos is Lord, scribbled under it. If somebody writing that going like, this is crazy, why would you worship a crucified God? That's insane, but it's undeniable that it changed the world. That Christianity took hold in an unbelievable way. That in the, during the time of the Romans, when, man, life was just brutal, there was a time when the Colosseum, it was filled with people who wanted to watch people be torn apart by wild animals for sport. It was like going to the movies for them. 
And in this world, Christianity begins to take root and spread and spread and spread. How is that possible that it alters the world in such a dramatic way and changes it? Because it it offers hope. In a resurrection world, there is hope that there's love and purpose for everybody. So much success in this world, so much of this world is only accessible to people that are wealthy, have power, are attractive, right? So much of this world is only for the people who seem like they got it on day one. But in the resurrection story, this upside down story, the greatest among us, Jesus himself, on the night before he's crucified, he bends down and does what at the time would have been a slave's job and washes the feet of his disciples. And then the next day he dies a criminal's death. In this type of upside down economy where the least has become the greatest, anybody has access to that. Your station in life, uh, your talents, your abilities do not exclude you from greatness in the kingdom of God. It's available to anyone who will follow Jesus from any station. It provided hope that there was real love and real purpose and a real place for people who felt that they were outcasts. Not only that, in a world that was brutal, like you think about Romans, you know, this last couple years, the pandemic's been terrible. In in Roman times, there's just pandemics all the time. Sickness constantly. There's stories of like places that people lived in. There were no building codes, like buildings just falling and killing hundreds of people at a time. It was a brutal and difficult time to be alive. And in this time, this message of the resurrection is announced and begins to be taught. And this idea that it teaches, this reality that it teaches is that this is not all there is. In the resurrection, there's hope that the suffering that you were going through, the difficult life that you were going through is only a small part of a much, much larger story. The, the, the suffering and the struggles and the things that you've gone through, the things that you've done and the things that have been done to you are only a tiny, tiny part of a much, much, much bigger story. There's hope in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. There's hope that your suffering isn't meaningless. That, that it might have purpose. That, that God actually might use your suffering to change, change you and change the world. That's what the cross did. Change the world. And so the, the Christians, we follow, as we follow Christ and we follow these, these paths, it's sometimes in these things, these small part of this much larger story that, that God does these things and there's so much hope that our suffering is not permanent and there's so much hope that our suffering might actually have meaning in Christ. And it does. There's this hope that there's something more in this brutal, brutal world. So Christianity takes root. Uh, I want to read you this quote from this historian who studied this time about how, talking about how, how could Christianity take root in the Roman world. This is what he wrote. This guy's name is Kyle Harper. He said, for Christians, it was a positive program. This life was always meant to be transitory and just part of a larger story. What was important to the Christians was to orient one's life toward that larger story, the cosmic story, the story of eternity. They did live in this world, they experienced pain and loved others, but the Christians of that time were called to see the story of this life as just one of the stories in which they lived. The hidden map was this larger picture. That's how it took hold. That's how it began to spread worldwide and alter the course of history itself. There's also this hope that your sin does not define you. 
Uh, I can't help this. So uh, there's this weird detail in here. I, like if you were writing the story, it's an odd detail. It says that there is an angel. There were two angels. She looks in and she sees two angels, one at the head and one at the foot. Uh, and all they do in the whole story uh, is just ask her, like, why are you crying? The other time that pops in my head uh, of when this happened, uh, two angels on either side of like a bench or a seat, a long, long time ago, uh, God, is the, uh, God is giving directions. The nation of Israel is, is barely a thing, and God is giving directions to this guy named Moses about how they're going to worship, and they're going to build a temple, and they're going to build a tabernacle first, and, and inside the tabernacle, inside the Holy of Holies, the center place, this is where God is going to actually descend, and in some special way that's hard to understand, God is going to dwell there among his people. And it's going to be on top of this thing that they called the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there was this lid, and the lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. Once a year, and only once a year, the high priest, and only the high priest, would take the sacrifice offered for Israel, and he would come into the Holy of Holies, and there's this huge, long process that he had to go through, very crazy ritual. And he would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would take the blood, and he would splash it against the mercy seat for forgiveness of sins. And on top of the mercy seat, and one end, and on the other end, are angels. Standing there, with their wings outstretched over the mercy seat where the presence of God is. I can't help but, but see this, these angels on either side to help us recall this idea that here, this place where, where blood was thrown in the temple, uh, this, this place where God see, was seated, that the price was paid. Not only was the price paid, but it was accepted. The fancy word is propitiation, that Jesus took the punishment that I deserved and his, re- his resurrection proves that the price was accepted. That means this, that means there's hope that the worst thing that I've ever done does not define me anymore. Jesus does. It takes root, this resurrection kingdom takes root because there's hope that the things that I constantly screw up, the, the, the greed or, 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 or the constant need to prove, the constant need to uh, have people affirm me, the constant need of getting, only feeling good about myself if I get all the way through my checklist. All of these things, the, the short-tempered, the anger, none of these things are the most important thing about me and they're not the most important thing about you. If you are in Christ, the most important thing about you is Jesus. There's real hope in that. There's real hope in a resurrected Savior. There's also real hope that this is not all there is. So, um, uh, there's a hope that all things will be made new. Uh, Christians actually believe that everything is working not towards some mysterious afterlife, right? This sitting on a cloud playing a harp thing. Uh, that's, that's not, that doesn't, I'm not for that. Uh, there's actually, what the hope is, is that everything will be made new. Listen, look at Mary's mistake. Uh, so she has been weeping and weeping and weeping. The angels ask her, why is she crying? She, uh, she's like, I had to take my Lord away. And then she hears this voice. She turns around and sees Jesus standing there, but she doesn't recognize him. Uh, turned around, she saw Jesus standing there, did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, her mistake, I love, I mean, it's understandable that she didn't recognize him. She's been crying, it's early in the morning, Right? Also, you know, he's supposed to be dead. And she doesn't recognize him, but she thinks that he is a gardener. She doesn't mistake him for a soldier, a warrior. She doesn't mistake him for an important political figure or a religious leader. She doesn't mistake him for a CEO or someone famous. 
She mistakes him for a gardener. That detail can't be an accident. Because you could just leave that, that detail and be like, she didn't know who it was. And it, but they, they put the detail in here, a gardener. Jesus is this new, I'm just gonna read it to you. There's this guy named Ambrose, a long time ago, don't worry about it. Uh, but this dude named Ambrose, like really early in the church, wrote this, so good. As Adam, in the state of grace, the very beginning of the Garden of Eden, as, as Adam, in the state of grace and innocency, was placed in a garden, and the first office allotted to him was to be a gardener. So Jesus Christ appeared first in a garden and presents himself in a gardener's likeness. And as that first gardener was the parent of sin, the ruin of mankind, and the author of death, so is this gardener the ransom for our sins, the raiser of our ruins, and the restorer of our life. In some sense then, and it's a mystery, Christ was a gardener. But Mary's mistake was in supposing him the gardener of that place only and not the gardener of our souls. Man, they could write good sermons a long time ago. That was real good. He appears as a gardener. He's the second Adam, the one come to make all things new. And it begins then. And here's the thing. Here's the thing that's important to me that you understand, is that the resurrection, I think most of us believe, or maybe, I don't want to put this on you. I'll just say it this way. I grew, most of my life, I believe, and probably even live this way to this day, that eternity, that the, the, the resurrection, that the, the, the thing that God is going to do in our life, you know, these things, that happens when I die. That's at the end of my life, or maybe the end of this age, right? God's going to do this thing. The resurrection is for later. But the Bible seems to insist, Jesus himself seems to insist that the resurrection matters now. The the resurrection matters today. He insisted that the power of the resurrection, this eternal life that was given to his followers was not some distant end of life hope, but a present reality. That it begins when you accept Jesus. The resurrection matters in how we live and how we think today. So here's the deal. Jesus has two natures, which is hard to understand, but the Bible says it. So he he was fully human, 100% human. He was also fully divine. He inhabited, he inhabited inhabited two realms, two different kingdoms. So when they ask him, teach us to pray, he says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there's this, this kingdom of, of heaven, this eternal place that exists outside of time and, and, and space, this eternity where God is, and, and there his will is done. And then there's earth, where he's not so much obeyed, yet. And Jesus was an inhabitant of both of these. He lived in both of these things. John is hinting at this all, all, all the way through. In John chapter one, the first chapter John gives us, he tells us about this guy named Nathaniel, crazy story. Uh, Jesus is going around talking to different people. Disciples are coming, he's coming and calling his disciples and they, they, he has this conversation with Nathaniel. Blows Nathaniel's mind and Nathaniel's like, whoa, you truly are like a big deal. And Jesus goes, that impresses you? Man, you're gonna see heaven angels ascending and descending on me. He says this, he's referring back to this story a long time ago, this guy named Jacob wakes up in this place and he sees this stairway and, and, and there are angels like ascending and descending this stairway. Uh, the theologian Robert Plant wrote a song about it. And, and the angels ascending and descending and it's called, this is surely the gateway to heaven. And Jesus says that gateway to heaven, that's me. Uh, you'll see angels ascending and descending. You'll see that I am the intersection of eternity 
and the earth. And then he happens again, like a couple, a few chapters later. He's talking to this woman at the well, and she gets all confused because Jesus is talking crazy, he's saying stuff, and she doesn't understand because it's mind-blowing. And she finally is like, ugh. She asks a theological question. She's like, tell me about worship. Like, where, do we, where are we supposed to worship? It's a big deal where you worship back then because where you worship, it mattered. Like, there are places in this earth that people believe are, like, closer to God than others. For example, for the Jews, it was the temple. And for other people, it was different places, always on top of a mountain for pagan religions. And she says, hey, tell me about where we're supposed to worship this God. And Jesus says this mind-blowing thing. He says, uh, it's going to be me. I, I, I'm going to be the guy. I'm the place that you're going to worship. You're going to worship in spirit and truth through knowing me. He's saying that the access to the eternal world, to the heavenly world, that's me. I'm the way. I'm the only way. It's through me that you will have access to that eternity. He is the intersection of the eternal and the mortal, of the thing that will last forever and has always been, and the thing that will one day be no more. Jesus is that intersection of these things. And God's life flows into him. He exists and lives off this, this, this eternal power, this eternal life, the God's life that is inside of him, turns out to be more powerful than death. And Jesus, full of that life, is resurrected. And after the resurrection, I think that's what we see going on. Uh, The place where heaven and earth intersect overlap. Turns out it's not a place, but it's a person. The access to the eternal is through him. And he exists in in these two realms, in these, these two kingdoms at once. The life that he has, the life that comes from God, is the life that he talks about giving to other people. If you want eternal life, what do I do? Like, you come and you be born again. What? You have life in me. The Holy Spirit coming and dwelling inside of us, or the image that Jesus uses of a vine and its branches. The life the branch comes from the vine. The life that flows through the vine goes into the branch. That's what he's talking about. The life that we have, God's life, the eternal life, comes to us through Jesus and that Jesus has somehow brought it down and given it to us and we have access through it, the promised eternal life by faith. This connection to God where life never ends. The mind-blowing part is that they insist that you have access to that now. That you have it by being so locked in with Jesus by faith that his life flows into you. And that means that we have that promised life now. So Paul is trying to capture all this in Ephesians 2, 6 when he says this. He says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are so tightly united with Jesus by faith that him sitting at the Father's right hand, him sitting in eternity right now, that counts as us there. Our life is that tied up with his. That is the resurrection life. And so what that means is that we begin to live this upside down world now. That that Jesus has brought this new kingdom down to us and this new life. And so then we can actually now, by by the strength that he gives us, by the Holy Spirit living inside of us, that we can actually begin to live this resurrected life now. The life of the eternity, we can actually begin to play that out now. Which means that we live in a world that values what? Power and beauty and ability and all of these things that the world holds very, very important. We can begin to live in this world with our feet firmly planted in this world by the eternal kingdom standards where service is valued, where the last are made first 
and the first are made last. Where we don't hold so tightly to things that, 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 that we can just let them slip through our hands. Where, where we don't value wealth, where we trust that God is the one that's in control and sovereign. We can begin to live by those things and those standards now by the strength that God has placed inside of us. We can love like he has loved us because of what he's done. This is the power of the resurrection. It changes everything. It affects how you see your marriage. I mean, if there is a resurrection, right? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Then this means this about your marriage, that your marriage is not yours, that it belongs to him, that he's placed you in it like he placed Adam and Eve in the garden to tend it and make it flourish. It's not yours, it's his. It means you think about your children differently, that it's not just, I'm not just here to, to entertain them and to keep them alive and to make them successful in this world, that I'm here to learn, to shepherd, to teach them, to help them learn what is important and what's not, to shepherd their heart to see what is beautiful and good and true. Which, by the way, way harder than just putting on Netflix. It's a lot of work, not doing great. It means that you see your job differently. It's not the end all, be all. It means that you see your money and your finances differently because there's an empty tomb. The resurrection matters when you screw up and you fail so terribly and you feel awful and you think that there's no hope for you, that you'll never be loved again. How could anyone love you? The empty tomb says the sacrifice was accepted and you can run to Jesus right now. Over and over and over again, there is real hope in this. And here's how you have it. It is a gift of grace by faith alone. You believe that Jesus rise from the dead. And then you ask yourself, you, what has he done? And, and, and he leads us to begin to form our lives around Jesus. Not out of obligation, but out of conviction out of belief and faith that he is beautiful and that he is good, that he is Lord and he uses his lordship to give us access to eternal life right now in him. Access to live and experience the upside down kingdom right now. Getting up every day and applying this truth, this reality, not calling us to better behavior, although our behavior will change as we center our lives around Jesus, but he's not calling us to better behavior, he's calling us to believe and accept calling us to live in response to the truth even when you can't see it, even when you don't experience, that is faith. So the question is, did Jesus really rise from the dead? If so, the transformation has already begun and it's available by faith to you. Let's pray. Father, resurrection is such a marvelous thing to consider. There is not a square inch of all of creation that does not long for resurrection. To be made new, to be forgiven, to not live under the burden of shame and sin, but to live serving and loving each other. I thank you for this church, for these people that constantly point me to Jesus, that constantly point me to his goodness, to his lordship and to his goodness in his lordship. What matters is how he uses his lordship and uses his lordship to serve us, to connect us to the eternal life that we can have through him by faith. Give us wisdom, give us eyes to see this, to live this way. We live in a world that, man, just doesn't value the same things as Christ does. But give us strength to live that resurrected eternal kingdom life now 
to see it playing out in our hearts, applying the truth of justification, applying the truth that we've been forgiven for our sins to our heart every single morning, applying the reality that this is not all there is to our thoughts every single day so that we fall more and more and more in love with this Jesus. Make us more like him. It's in his name we pray.